Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mets fans, welcome to episode 246 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We missed you last week and we were off, and hopefully you missed us too. We are back with a, a bit of a different show because my co-host, my partner in crime, my friend, Chris McShane, is getting married on Saturday. So congratulations, Chris. Uh, that means he's very busy this week and doesn't have time to... Uh, Talk Mets with his old pal Brian, but that's all right. I'm going to answer your emails, which you can always send to podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com, and I will do my best to answer them. Uh, we have some really interesting emails this week. I mean that in, in every sense of the word interesting, so let's jump right in here. Uh, Ryan emailed to say, assuming Daniel Murphy finishes 2017 strong, has two more stellar seasons, two more very good seasons, and one average season. Is he in the running for the Hall of Fame? I cannot believe I just asked if Daniel Murphy can make the Hall. 
but he could very well finish with 2,000-plus hits, 500-plus doubles, 1,000-plus RBIs, 1,000-plus runs scored, a 310 career average, 7 All-Star games, and several years of postseason heroics. It's not inconce- inconceivable that the Nationals will make the World Series before Harper is an unrestricted free agent. If they win one, potentially make the playoffs and make a few more All-Star games, he'll be in the National Spotlight, which will help counter his lack of amazing counting stats. He had won the batting title last year, or had he won the batting title last year, or gulp, if he wins an NL MVP in the next few years, it would be an even more credible case. Um, thank you for the email, Ryan. I don't see Daniel Murphy making the Hall of Fame. You have to realize, Daniel Murphy was a good player for the majority of his time on the Mets. The last six months he played for the Mets, he became a great player. And now he has had a season and a half of being a great player for Washington. So we're talking approximately two seasons of greatness so far. So even if he has two more great seasons, or stellar as you put it, uh, two more very good seasons and one average season, I don't think he necessarily fits either the peak performance that the Hall of Fame looks for, nor the longevity of greatness that the Hall of Fame looks for. I mean, look, if he has the next four seasons where he's just, you know, above and beyond, if, if he's Mike, Mike Trout for the next four seasons, maybe. Maybe. But I still think the beginning of his career is going to hurt him. And I also think that the Hall of Fame or Hall of Fame voters tend to care about defense, and we know Murph is an adventure in the field. So I can't see him necessarily uh, making a case for the Hall of Fame. Though I suppose he probably deserves some careful consideration by the voters five years after he retires if he keeps up this kind of pace. Uh, But I also feel obligated to say uh, he's a homophobe, so who cares? All right, that uh, I also want to mention that it's funny that you say that the uh, there could be some postseason heroics. You may not know who the Nationals are. They used to be the Expos, and they're not good in the postseason. I just keep telling myself that. Um, you know, it makes me feel a little bit better about the uh, the current state of things. Uh, this email is from David. He said, "What's up, guys? Happy Harvey Day to all." With a frowny face. Sure, I'll, I, although I, the last kind of Harvey Day we had, he, he threw off a mound or he at least threw a baseball and felt good. So that's 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 a happy Harvey Day kind of, depending how you uh, look at it. Uh, any updates on Thomas Zapucky and Jordan Humphreys? Uh, Jordan Humphreys, no. I've tried to do some research. It just looks like he was added to the seven-day DL. Not a ton of info out there. I'm sure if it's, uh, if it, you know, I'm sure more info will become available soon. And I meant to uh, email Steve Saipa about this, and uh, frankly, it didn't get to it. So sorry, no Jordan Humphreys information. But Sabucky had Tommy John surgery today, the twentieth uh, of sorry twenty. 20- 21st, no, 20th, I'm recording this after midnight, my bad, 20th of uh, of July, he had Tommy John surgery, successful Tommy John surgery, so it seems, so um, it'll be a while before we hear anything from Zapucky. Thank you for the email, David. We have another email from Ryan, and Ryan's asking some intriguing questions uh, this week, as I sip my beer. Can someone explain to me why we assume Dominic Smith would be a better fit for the 2018 Mets than Lucas Duda? Duda will be a 32-year-old season, in his 32-year-old season next year, and it's safe to say he'll have an 8.50 OPS and a 3 to 3 and a half WAR. Is there anything in Smith's minor league performance that indicates he'll provide that over the next three years? My suggestion is to try and get Duda to a three-year deal with a fourth-year option buyout. If that works, trade Smith. If it doesn't, offer Duda a qualifying offer and hold Smith back for another year. 
It's not that I love Duda. I see it's that I see too many holes in the 2018 offense. If we can lock down one eighth of the lineup with a 253, 5500, 25 home run player, it's a lot safer than rolling the dice with somebody whose OPS in AAA Las Vegas is comparable to Duda's in New York City. Spend the winter figuring out second base and third base, and you won't need a backup plan in case Smith can't hit. As to Jose Reyes, and this is the really interesting part of this email. Uh, you know, actually, let me pause here. Let me talk about Smith first, and I'll get to the Reyes part. I would rather have Duda than Smith in almost every single capacity. Duda is an underrated first baseman in almost every aspect of the game. He has amazing power, which we forget sometimes, and then you see him just absolutely smoke a ball that seems to never come down. He's a much better defensive first baseman than people give him credit for. He's he's a solid player. He's a very solid player, and he will continue to be a solid player, I think, for the next few years. He doesn't have the type of skill set that typically falls off the uh, goes off the rails here. You know, this is sort of an outdated term, but there's there used to be something that uh, people would call like old player skills and young player skills, and Duda has old player skills already, which means that he will age well because he will not lose his young player skills. He will keep his old, old player skills. He will still have a good eye. He will still be able to hit the cover off the ball. And, uh, yeah, Lucas Duda's good, guys. He's really good. That is, um, it's like the Amazing Avenue mantra the last couple of years. But it's true. Lucas Duda is a good first baseman. He is not as streaky as people make it, make him seem. He's actually fairly consistent. He's just not flashy. And so people tend to ignore him. Um, I am not a Dom Smith fan. I hope Dom Smith surprises me. Seems like a good person. Uh, I'm always happy to see a Met farmhand do well for the Mets. But I would much rather see Duda as the Mets' first baseman for the next three or four years, even though that is p- picking a player who's about to enter his decline over a player who is just coming up. But I think, again, like Ryan says here, Smith has not tore up AAA, and it's way, way easier to hit in Las Vegas than it is in City Field. So I don't believe the Dom Smith hype. I think a lot of people at Amazing Avenue don't believe the Dom Smith hype. And um, I'm going to say it. You shouldn't believe it either. Prove me wrong, Dom Smith, for another team, though, because I want the Mets to sign Duda. We'll see. All right, so here comes this interesting part of the email. And this is the part of the email I'm really sad Chris is not here for because Chris would have had a lot of fun with this. To Jose Reyes, I am fully willing to admit that I am wholly irrational in my love for him. But if, and that's a big if, his second half, half OPS is in the range, why not bring him back as a backup infielder slash pinch hitter slash PR, pinch runner, I presume that means not public relations personality. Uh, if you can get him for a reasonably no, low contract, tell him you want him to finish a career in New York City, induct him into the Mets Hall of Fame, and maybe make him a player coach mentor one day, how does he say no? Okay, let's let's take the last part first. He wouldn't say no. It would make total sense for Jose Reyes to take any money the Mets will throw at him over the next few years. Why? Because Jose Reyes doesn't deserve any money for the next few years. Leaving aside the fact that he uh, is a domestic abuser, which, you know, I'm not saying we should throw him in a hole and bury him and all of that, but leaving that aside for a second, uh, he's not that good. Yes, he's been better of late, but being better than the first half Jose Reyes is not that hard. It really, really isn't. You know, today he got the, quote, game-winning RBI for hitting a ball reasonably hard to the first baseman when the pitcher should have covered. It seems like those type of things happen to Reyes a lot. Now, 
I'm sure his supporters will say, well, it's his speed that allows things like that to happen. You know, his speed gets in the head of somebody. I believe that a little bit. I don't believe that a lot. And uh, I don't want Reyes in this team next year. I, I, I can't be any more clear about that. I don't want Reyes in the team. Do I think that he's the worst everyday player in baseball anymore, as he was earlier this year? No, I don't. But if the beginning of last year, he was one of the worst players in baseball. The end of the year before that, he was one of the worst players in baseball. And the beginning of this year, he was one of the worst players in baseball. What does that tell you about his skills? Even if he has a second half where he is wholly decent, that still means that for more than half the season, he was terrible. Or half the season, or a little bit less than half. My point is this. We all remember when Wright and Reyes were the future of the team. We all remember those stupid fashion spreads they did. Those days are gone, and it it hurts me to say that because I I am the biggest David Wright fan out there. I grew up loving those guys. I used to tease my wife when she was pregnant with with our daughter, who's now five, that uh, if it was a boy, we were going to name the son Jose Reyes Salvatore. I mean, this is, that's how much I love Jose Reyes back in the day. But, you know, you uh, you take him out of New York for a little while. The, he's, his play starts to decline. And then again, the off-the-field stuff, I don't need him. So while he wouldn't say no to being a player or a coach, uh, I think I would say no. And uh, everyone knows my opinion counts. So <laughs> there you go, I guess. Uh Final email of the week. And again, please keep sending them in. Podcast at AmazonAvenueAudio.com. This comes from our pal Wynn in Nashville. Hey, y'all. As I was looking at the score uh, the score line for the Mets game during a break in my packing up my apartment, I was whisked away in my mind's eye to this time last year when I first began tuning into the illustrious podcast. Thank you. The Mets playoffs hope, Mets playoff hopes look dim, and they would need an unlikely string of victories to even be considered in the wildcard conversation. Lo and behold, almost as soon as I tuned in, they began winning. Now, I'm not here to claim in any form or fashion that my personal choice to listen to a podcast was in any way responsible for the Mets' turnaround. But what I do remember as I first began to tune in is how much fun the Mets appear to be having, both on the field and in the dugout. This past week, I felt the need to remind myself of that fact, that I have been guilty of forgetting on more than a few occasions. Baseball is meant to be a game, and a summertime one at that. These men are some of the lucky few individuals in all of human history who have made a living, and in recent cases a rather sizable one, playing the greatest game mankind has ever played. Surely the majority of this team has not forgotten that, and I have every faith they make the playoffs again this year, if it is in part to the understanding spreading to the whole team. Even to the point where we might see Lucas Duda crack a grimaced smile, grimaced but earnest smile before the year is out. Who, in your opinion, is most likely to lead the charge in that respect and make baseball fun again? Thanks, Wynn, for the email. Um, you know, I, I think watching the players have fun is sort of uh, similar to clubhouse chemistry, which is this idea that, you know, there are certain players that their mere presence in the in the, in the the clubhouse manages to elevate the team's performance, that a loose team is a good team. You hear all this all the time. You hear this all the time by teams that are winning. You hear this all the time by teams that are doing well, that aren't injury plagued that don't have a nickel and dime front office because yes I do think the chemistry matters to a certain degree you know I don't think there's a reason that uh, Jonathan Papelbon is uh, Jonathan Papelbon at this point in his career because nobody wants him because he's an asshole and because he seems to be a genuinely bad presence in the clubhouse Papelbon's aside I think that 
teams have fun when they win. And that the reason you saw the Mets start to smile last year is because they started to win. You know, remember back the beginning of this season when Cabrera was uh, was was back to his old ways of pulling the helmet off after a home run, and there were celebrations and there were handshakes and all that. That happens when a team is playing well. When a team is playing like garbage, that's, that doesn't happen because nobody wants to celebrate. If you're down seven nothing and you hit a solo home run, you'll get some some high fives from the from your teammates, but it's not going to be this joyous celebration. It's not the same way where if your team is up seven nothing. And it has to happen more than once. It has Your team has to be good for a while before that fun starts to sit in. I can't think of a bad team in my years of watching baseball who were loose and having fun and all of that all the time. Maybe they're there. I just don't remember them. I, but I, I honestly cannot remember one team that was that way. So, you know, when I love your optimism, if the Mets make the playoffs this year, that is... Incredible. That would be a truly stunning turnaround. And I, for one, will be the loudest one cheering. But I just can't see it happening. I mean, right now, just just looking at the big things right now. You don't have Syndergaard. You don't have Harvey. You have a, a, an injured and looking terrible Yoannis Cespedes. Right now, you don't have Neil Walker. Just there alone, it's an uphill struggle. Then you remember that the bullpen is trash. Then you remember they're probably going to trade the one or two members of the bullpen that aren't trash. Then you remember that this team still, for some reason, sometimes doesn't play Michael Conforto. You remember that David Wright has a broken back and that his replacements have been lackluster at best, in part because the Mets won't call up Ahmed Rosario and strengthen their entire team by that one move. You take all of this into consideration, and it just seems like a pipe dream that the Mets make the playoffs. But when, damn it, I hope you're right. Man, I hope you're right. If you're right, the next time you're in New York, beer's on me. I mean that. If the Mets make the playoffs win, you and you alone will have a chance to... Actually, anybody who wants to have a beer with me is more than welcome to. So, cheers, everybody. But yeah, I, um, I hope you're right, Win. I do. Uh, As for what player is going to be the first to bring that back, I actually think that the aforementioned Jose Reyes is as good of a guess as any. But I would say that if Cespedes can get his swagger back, that will be the the real telltale sign there. If he starts hitting some home runs, or just hitting the ball hard at least, in the next few weeks, and you see the team turn around, I think when Cespedes has that that swinging dick swagger, that everybody just responds to that. So I think that's the most likely culprit to get the whole team going. Uh, although, and I can't see this happening, if David Wright suited up and was playing a little bit, I think that would go a long way also. But we'll see. for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today we're going to talk about trade deadline season because even though it's two weeks before the 2017 trade deadline, there's still so many deals going on, and some of those affect the Mets more than others, but we're going to talk about a couple of the big ones that went down lately. Since we're recording on a Wednesday, it's it's still big news that last night the Yankees and the White Sox pulled off a blockbuster deal. 
that sent prospects to Chicago in exchange for Tommy, Tommy Canely, David Robertson, and Todd Frazier in a move that shored up the Yankees' bullpen, which was already kind of sacked to begin with, although Tyler Clippert is also going to Chicago. So they, but they're sick of him, so they get their old boy, Dave Robertson, who's going to get a nice homecoming of sorts and help their bullpen situation. But the part that affects the Mets... Although that part also, the bullpen also affects the Mets because the Yankees were rumored to be in Ad, on Addison Reed and rumored to be in on Lucas Duda. But the Duda thing is probably not happening because Todd Frazier is going to the Yankees in that deal. And he's going to start every day for them at third base and help out their corner infield situation. Although I suppose the Yankees still could add a first baseman. It's less likely now than it was just a couple days ago. So, so the Yankees, they make a big deal. And while the rumors about them and the Mets might have just been a New York media thing, there, there were needs that matched up. The Mets will probably find someone to take Addison Reed because everyone's looking for a reliever this time of year. At least every contender is. But the, the Mets and the Yankees did kind of match up from, from, a, from a perspective of what the Yankees needed. Lucas Duda and Jay Bruce can both play first base. Both guys are going to be free agents, and so the Mets should look to trade them. But fortunately, or hopefully, they can find another taker. The bad news is the return for bats this year in trade so far hasn't been great. For that, we can look to what Detroit got in return for J.D. Martinez when they dealt him to Arizona, another trade that went down yesterday. J.D. Martinez really crushing it. In the corner outfield this year, but their return was considered quite underwhelming. They got three prospects. I think the best one was the fourth best in Arizona's system. Although J.D. Martinez is a rental, that's the same type of player the Mets would be dealing away, guys who are going to be free agents. So for even a really good hitter as a rental, the return has not been mind-blowing. So the Mets might end up holding on to guys like Curtis Granderson or Jay Bruce, because those guys aren't as good as J.D. Martinez, at least from an offensive perspective. And considering what the return for Martinez was, it's just not going to be great for either of those guys. So we'll see how the Mets act. Maybe they can package one of them with Addison Reed and save a little bit of money. But as Kesem Rosenthal is reporting on Facebook, the Mets might be looking to include money in a deal in order to secure a better return. And that makes sense because the Mets were expecting to compete this year. And when they were expecting to compete, of course, you budget the money out. You're expecting to pay these guys for a full year. So why not continue paying these guys for a full year and get a little bit of, and get, and get maybe a slightly better prospect, someone who can help you out down the line. So Mets wanting to include money is positive development, but J.D. Martinez getting almost nothing, or not almost nothing, but an underwhelming return is not good for the Mets. So there's a little bit to take away from that deal as the Mets continue to move closer to the trade deadline. There's still two weeks for things to happen. Guys can get hurt. Guys can... Guys can... uh, I mean, other, other things can open up. We just saw uh, Chris Bryant left this, left this game in Atlanta for the Cubs with an injury. So things happen all the time. 
something could open up that lets the Mets make a deal that works for them. But one guy who they appear to be close to trading is Asdrubal Cabrera, the shortstop, third baseman, second baseman. The Red Sox need a guy like that, and apparently the two teams are in talks, according to Peter Gammons on Twitter. So if the Mets do move Cabrera over to the, the Red Sox, they could end up paying the buyout that they would owe him next year if they don't bring him back. And it would also open up some more playing time for TJ Rivera at second base, which is a good thing because he has a chance, the way he's hitting right now, to be the opening day second baseman next year. And if that happens, it would save the Mets a lot of money to spend elsewhere on third base or in center field or maybe even at first base where they could use some help in case Dominic Smith isn't the bee's knees right away. So, so T.J. Rivera could certainly use some playing time. The Mets have been disappointed with Asdrubal Cabrera, certainly from a team chemistry aspect, although who really knows what's going on in the locker room there. But his fielding hasn't been great this year. He got a little cranky when asked to change positions. And even though his walk rate and his contact rate are pretty good, he's not hitting for as much power last year, despite the surge in home runs across the league. And his BABIP's down, but... That is probably reason why the Red Sox want him, because they see the, the walk and strikeout rates and figure he's going to hit a little better down the stretch than he has so far this year. So we'll continue to monitor the Drupal Cabrera situation. The Mets aren't going to get much back from the Red Sox, but they, will, they should pay the buyout and open up some spots on the infield for Rivera and others. Maybe a Ciccini return, maybe... Ahmed Rosario in September if, if they finally break their love affair with Jose Reyes. But the wheels have begun turning on the trade machine for the Mets. So that is fun for now. And this has been Aaron York from Amazing Avenue Audio. Hey, everyone. This is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go for our Minor League Players of the Week for Week 15. The Las Vegas 51s went 1-3. and three. They had an abbreviated week because of the AAA or All-Star game. And they are 35-58 and 58 for the year, which is 15 games behind the Salt Lake Bees. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 3-1. and one. They also had an abbreviated week because of the Eastern League All-Star game. And they are 49-38, and 38, which is 10 games behind the Trenton Thunder. St. Lucie Mets went an even 3-3. Three and three, And they are currently 8-14 and 14 in the second half which puts them eight and a half games behind the Fort Myers Miracles for first. The Columbia Fireflies went two and four, and they are also eight and 14 in the second half, and that puts them eight games behind the Charleston River Dogs for first place. Cyclones went one and five this week, putting them at six and 19 for the season, and that's 12 games behind Staten Island. The Kingsport Mets went four and two and are nine and 12 for the year. And the GCL Mets went 1-3 with a rain suspension and are 5-11. and 11. Now, before I get to our pitcher and hitter of the week, I just want to quickly go over our pitcher and hitter of the week from last week. Uh, since we didn't have a podcast last week, I have two weeks to cover here. So the hitter of the week was Dom Smith, and he was well-deserving of it. He went 12-31 and 31 with three doubles, four home runs, 12 RBI, one walk, and three strikeouts. Our pitcher of the week was Jason Campos, a right-hander from the GCL Mets. 
He appeared in two games and pitched a total of 10.2 innings, allowing three earned runs, five hits, six walks, and 17 strikeouts. Since everyone knows, you know, all about Dom, I'm just kind of going to gloss over him. But I want to get into a little detail about Campos since he's not exactly a, a name brand pitcher here. He was signed by the Mets last year in June out of the Venezuelan Baseball League. He was 20 at the time, which is a bit old for a prospect uh, in the Caribbean to kind of be noticed by an MLB team. But the Mets obviously saw something in him and his play with La Caribs de Enzo at Tegui, uh, a team which is co-owned by Maglio Ordonez, the former uh, White Sox and Tiger Slugger from the 2000s. So they signed him for an undisclosed amount, you know, because bonuses that Venezuelans get are generally not released to the public because of issues in Venezuela, unfortunately. And he was assigned to the Dominican Summer League, and the numbers in the Dominican Summer League don't really matter, but he posted a 3.38 ERA in 16 innings with solid peripherals, three walks, and 20 strikeouts. He made his debut this year. Uh, He got into a game at Brooklyn, and then he was sent back down to the Gulf Coast League. And same thing like the DSL, the numbers don't really matter in the GCL, it's more the story behind those numbers. So it doesn't really matter that Campos, you know, uh, as of last week, had a 2.20 ERA, it's more how he was doing that that's important. And his bread and butter is basically his fastball. Uh, Campos' fastball sits in the low to mid-90s, it's touched as high as 95 and he complements that with slider, a mid eighty slider with pretty good late-breaking action, and a mid eighties changeup. Uh, obviously, we're working with a small sample size here, but so far, he's been able to command his pitches, and he's able to throw them in all four quadrants of the plate. And there really isn't too much else to say about Campos right now. There just really isn't that much information out there. Um, if he keeps the success that he's had up, That makes a pretty interesting GCL team even more interesting, if you ask me. There's a few interesting 2016 prep draftees on the team. There's Matt Cleveland, Dariel Rivera, Eric Villanueva. There's a few interesting 2017 prep draftees. There's Bryce Hutchinson, who I'm really high on, if anyone follows me on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, His pal Nate Pedden, Noah Nunez, and Liam McCall. And then there's an interesting IFA signings on the team. There's Dyson Acosta and Jason Valera. So if Campos is able to kind of put himself on the map, you know, adding him to that list of interesting guys would be a pretty big um, boon to the lower minors. Now with that out of the way, let's get to this week. Our pitcher of the week for this week, week 15, is Chris Flexen. He pitched one game this week, a start against the Redden Fighting Phils, and he took a no-hitter into the eighth inning. And in the end, he wound up giving up one run on one hit and then walk, striking out nine. So this is the third time now that Flexen has been our pitcher of the week, the first time that any player has gotten the nod uh, since I've started doing this in April three times. A few weeks ago, I asked kind of rhetorically if he was the Mets' top pitching prospect, and I think at this point it's pretty clear that he is, especially since Thomas Zapucky hit the DL a few days ago with a strained left forearm, which could be nothing, or it could be Tommy John in a few weeks. You know, these are the Mets, so always assume the worst. If Flexen keeps it up at the rate that he's been pitching, uh, he's I think he's definitely going to be the guy that makes the biggest jump from where he was in 2017 prospect lists to where he will be in 2018 prospect lists. 
uh, we at Amazing Avenue, we had Flexen at 21. And depending on how good he is for the rest of the year and how the rest of the top 10 does and how ambitious, you know, everyone who's going to be contributing to that list wants to be, I think that he's going to reach the top 10. So he's going to be moving up at least 16 spots. I think, though, he's not going to be the guy that moves the furthest overall from where he was in 2016, though, unfortunately. I think that's going to be Wilmer Becerra, who's probably going to drop off most most lists completely, really. I mean, we had him at 10 uh, in 2017, and I think that he's going to fall off the top 25, so that's going to be a drop of 16 spots. You know, Jumping up is a lot better than dropping off, though, especially that many spots, so that's pretty unfortunate. But it's a boon that Flexen has been doing so good. And now our hit of the week is Columbia Fireflies center fielder Desmond Lindsay. He went 7 for 24 with 2 home runs, 5 RBI, 3 walks, and 10 strikeouts. Now, I read literally just a few minutes ago, right before I started recording this, one of our commenters said that Lindsay is, quote, a bust. Now, if all you're going to do is just look at his stat line, his 205, 321, 375 line is uninspiring for a player that's generally regarded as one of the Mets' top position players. But, as they say, don't scout the stat line. You know... He's far from perfect, Lindsay, but he's been more than holding his own, if you actually look at it, as a 20-year-old in the South Atlantic League. He actually has a 104 WRC+, wins creative plus, weighted, meaning that his offensive output is actually slightly above average for the Sally. If you look at his numbers month by month, you could actually see him kind of getting acclimated to the league. Um, in 21 games in April, he hit 194. 364, 343. In 21 games in May, he hit 100, 217, 167. In 11 games in June, remember in the middle of the month, he was put on the DL uh, after colliding with a catcher, sliding into home plate. So in 11 games in June, he hit 333, 400, 694. And in nine games so far in July, he's hitting 270, 325, 459. So as... The months are going on now. You could actually see him, you know, getting acclimated to the league and, and doing better. And remember, coming into 2017, he really, you know, he was very raw. He had all of 72 professional games under his belt. Between 2015 and 2016, Lindsay had a grand total of 26 games with the GCL Mets and 46 games with the Brooklyn Cyclones. So there really, you know, there really isn't much that Lindsay is doing this year that looks like he's taken a step back from last season. His strikeout rate is a bit alarming. Right now it's at 31.2%, which is way too high. And he's been a lot less aggressive at the plate in year, you know, as compared to 2015 and 2016. But he's also, you know, he's been dealing with stuff that's more advanced than he's ever seen before. Uh, given that his only prior experience is in the GC, is high school, GCL and the New York Penn League. Uh, his, you know, his, his physical tools, they still look good. He's been on the field more, and, you know, the trip that he had to the DL this year, it was kind of a freak injury thing, and nothing that could potentially sap from his play on the field going forward, you know, like a hamstring injury or wrist injury or shoulder, something like that. So, Lindsay coming into the season is still the player that Lindsay is now. He hasn't been dominating, but he's still young enough and broad enough that we could kind of give him a pass for everything that isn't great. 
because, you know, like I said, nothing in the profile has really changed. And everything that Scat saw in him and, you know, all that stuff a few months ago, it's still there. It's still who he is. So don't get too worried about Lindsay. So those are our minor league players of the week for week 15. I'm Steve Saipa, and I'll talk with everyone next week. Mason Avenue. If Michael Conforto singled in the winning run in the bottom of the ninth in this most recent All-Star game, it would have cracked the top five Midsummer Classic moments. Alas, he struck out and settled for a one-for-two evening in his All-Star debut. Thus, these are the top five Mets All-Star highlights. At number five, it's Lee Mazzilli in the 1979 contest in Seattle. The lone representative for the lowly Mets didn't see action in this 50th All-Star game until the 8th inning. Nevertheless, his cameo appearance was made worthwhile. Leading off with the National League down 6-5, Mazzilli took a Jim Kern pitch down the left field line, approaching the Kingdom's 316-foot barrier. It went about 316.5 feet, just enough. The defensive heroics of game MVP Dave Parker kept the score tied into the ninth. That's when the NL and Mazzilli took advantage of misguided American League pitching. Joe Morgan drew a one-out bases on balls and moved to second on a balk. Parker was intentionally walked. Ron Say earned the traditional free pass to load the bases for Maz with two gone. Ron Guidry came in relief, but was afflicted with the same lack of control. His 3-1 pitch drifted outside. Mazzilli had driven in the tying and go-ahead runs. The 7-6 lead was confidently placed into the hands of split-finger specialist Bruce Suter, who closed out the NL's eighth consecutive victory. Now on to number four and Jacob deGrom's dominant inning in 2015. By the time he was selected for his first All-Star appearance, deGrom had transformed from college shortstop at Stetson University to the surprising recipient of the 2014 National League Rookie of the Year. That didn't mean his hairness wouldn't be out to prove something. If DeGrom's goal was to make some of the American League's best hitters look foolish, mission accomplished. For three batters, Stephen Vogt of the Oakland A's, Jason Kipnis of the Cleveland Indians, and the Detroit Tigers' Jose Iglesias, the end result was the same, a swinging strikeout. And so was the method to get them, fastballs clocked upwards of 100 miles an hour. The opportunities to shine under the all-star spotlight come few and far between, but those who seize the opportunity aren't soon forgotten. If those that were at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati that night don't remember DeGrom's sixth-inning supremacy, then they weren't paying attention. Two years before DeGrom shined in the all-star spotlight, another young Mets pitcher, accompanied by a veteran, helped greet the best American and National Leaguers to their home park. It took nearly five decades, but the All-Star game was back in flushing, and it's the number three moment on our list. David Wright started at third base for the NL, got the royal treatment from the hometown fans, and went one for three while batting in the cleanup spot. His being there was no surprise. Matt Harvey was there too. The fact that it was so soon, and he got the starting pitching nod, was something quite unexpected when his first full season began. But Harvey certainly earned his way there. He was 7-2 with a 2.35 ERA, 147 strikeouts, and a 196 batting average against. The Dark Knight's two innings went just about as well as could have been expected for an all-star rookie. 
two innings, three strikeouts, one hit, no runs. This would have been the first of many Midsummer Classic appearances. As of right now, it's his only appearance. Another young pitcher is highlighted in our number two moment. Never does a pitcher go into an All-Star game expecting to come away with such recognition as MVP. If lucky, their cameo appearance only lasts an inning or two. John Matlack was no exception. At the 1975 contest in Milwaukee's County Stadium, Matlack entered in the bottom of the seventh, ironically inheriting a tie that was created when Tom Seaver allowed three runs in the sixth. Matlack prevented any AL uprising, allowing two singles and striking out four of the seven batters he faced. It remained 3-3 three to three into the top of the ninth, just in time for the NL's other hero. Bill Madlock singled home Reggie Smith and Al Oliver for what would turn out to be the game-clinching runs. Pete Rose added another for good measure with a sacrifice fly. Soon after, Randy Jones retired the Americans in order, and both Madlock and Matlack shared MVP honors. Pitching has been the primary theme in three of the past four items on our all-time all-star moments list, and the same goes for number one. It's 19-year-old Dwight Gooden at the 1984 game in San Francisco. When it comes to strikeouts in the All-Star game, the standard was set in quantity and quality by Carl Hubble way back in 1934. Five straight Hall of Famers from the American League were humbled by his baffling screwball. A half-century later, two pitchers, each having their own remarkable stories, honored the former giant at Candlestick Park. After Fernando Valenzuela struck out each of the three batters he faced in the fourth inning, it was time for Gooden, and some history, to make an appearance in the fifth, as a former rookie sensation was passing the baton to the current one. With three months of absorbing the spotlight in New York, and leading the majors with 134 Ks, the national audience was well aware of what Gooden was capable of. Not to disappoint, the youngest all-star ever proceeded to blow away a succession of three AL sluggers, Lance Parrish of Detroit, fellow Tiger Chet Lemon, and the Seattle Mariners' Alan Davis. Prior to this night, only four pitchers in the 51-year history of the exhibition had struck out the side. Gooden went one more inning and allowed a fluke double, ending the night for the newest superstar of the National League. A fluke double in the sixth prevented Gooden from a perfect evening, but it made quite an impression on NL teammates, including his battery mate for these two innings and for many more forthcoming. Gary Carter was about to win his second All-Star Game MVP and was months away from trading his Montreal colors for Mets colors. It was truly a look into the future. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. We have a new problem, and it's that the Mets are as close to officially selling as I think we're going to get, and they might have overplayed their hand at this point, which is which is crazy. We're still two weeks out, and I'm recording this Wednesday afternoon on the heels of J.D. Martinez not bringing a whole lot back. The Yankees are now very likely out on Lucas Duda and Addison Reed, which was the perfect fit, and... You know, Jay Bruce and Curtis Granderson, they're not apparently not going to bring you back what the Mets were hoping for now that everyone knows that 
there are pieces out there and you don't have to give up a whole lot. It doesn't mean they shouldn't sell. They still should absolutely sell. You get back whatever the heck you can get back. But it changes the picture. And I think we're all going to be realistic that this isn't going to be a system restock. Like, I personally hoped it would be. Maybe foolishly. Maybe I was overestimating trade value. I probably was. But it's not going to be a whole lot. And it's probably not going to be very pretty if Sandy can pull it off at all. Folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you for listening. We truly appreciate it. As I said, everybody wish Chris congratulations on his upcoming nuptials. Uh, Chris, I, I guess I, I speak for, for the entire podcast audience when I say, uh, where's the after party? We'll meet you there. Um, I'm not really asking for that. Uh, Lord knows you will have enough uh, fun, Chris. So enjoy. Uh, Godspeed, Mazel Tov, etc. Uh, you can email the show, as our friends did earlier this week, at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We truly love getting your emails. They make the show a lot of fun. God, I wish Chris was here to talk about Jose Reyes, but that's a whole other story. Um, you can also get in touch with us a variety of ways through amazingavenue.com, where we post all sorts of Mets content, game threads, game recaps, Monday Mets morning mind bogglers, uh, analysis, minor league stuff. It's great stuff. Check it out, amazingavenue.com. Also check out Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can get this show, this very show you're listening to. Actually, you know where to get it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or download directly from blogtalkradio.com. It is kind of funny. We advertise how to get a show that you have to do one of those things to get, but it's a whole other story. And uh, you can find all of us on Twitter. I am at Brian is an app. Chris is at Chris McShane. Tweeted him. Happy uh, happy marriage. Um, Aaron is at Aaron P. York. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. And Brian Wright is at Brian Wright 86. So, the Mets have won uh, four of their last seven games. They split the series against the Cardinals. The A's are coming to town tomorrow. And maybe the Mets can, uh, you know, beat up on the A's a little bit. Stranger things have happened, and that might be a fun weekend. So let's hope that happens. And until time, until time, until next time, congratulations, Chris, and let's go next.